As you get settled in, again, I also would like to just wish a happy Father's Day to our dads that are here. Uh, To my own dad, who's oftentimes watching these uh, from home, I wish him a happy Father's Day. Uh, To my boys, who made me a father, I want to say thank you. And Amy had something to do with it too, so I should probably thank her. Funny thing happened actually this morning, uh, or this weekend, um, Grant got a shirt that he didn't like or didn't fit or something like that, and so he gave it to me. I'm wearing it now. Uh, So that was weird in and of itself when your kids start giving you hand-me-downs or whatever, but um, it was also funny because this morning he gave me a big hug, and he said, Happy Father's Day, Dad. And I said, Thank you. And he said, I got you a shirt. I said, Thank you. So I wore it today. So nice. Hey, we ended the message last uh, week with 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And Peter writes, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. We're actually in 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. We've been going through a series called Living in Light of Eternity. And we noted last week that the first three chapters of the book begin really with a a sound of celebration. You know, Paul's writing to them, this beloved church, brothers and sisters there, your commitment to Christ was authentic. Your endurance and the way that you have continued to press on, even in the face of strong opposition, has been wonderful. How he's seen this wonderful report that has come to them to see that their faith is thriving and continuing to make an impact not only there but really around the world. And so something happens when your faith begins to not only sort of take root in your life but that other people begin to take note. So so even now, many of you are not just growing in your walk with Jesus but you're in fact helping other people who look at you, you're helping their faith to grow as well. And that was the compliment that Paul was paying to the Thessalonian church. Your faith's being talked about all over the place. Keep it up. Keep going. Now, in the second section, which is chapter 4 and 5, we're going to finish chapter 4 today. Paul lays out a challenge to this church that he loves very dearly, essentially saying, I want you to be ready for the return of Christ. I want you to live in light of eternity, and I want you to have your eyes in the right places so that you're looking for the right things. And as he begins to encourage them in this, he, he gives them three things that we talked about last week. He said, he said, pursue a purity in your walk with the Lord. It's God's will that you would be sanctified. And then he says, be, be a people that would be known for pursuing purity. And though we preached on it for a good portion of the message last week, I tried not to give too much specific detail of this is what it looks like to pursue purity because given the fact that we're all in various phases of life and different levels of challenge, I think it's a much greater value in all of us saying, Holy Spirit, what is it that you would cause me to take, uh, be aware of at this time of my life? Maybe there's some areas where I'm, I'm stepping outside of the realm that you want me to be in. And so allow the Holy Spirit to be personal in calling you to greater purity. Uh, Paul also says in the, in the spirit of kind of being ready for the return of Christ, uh, be a loving witness. 
among one another. In fact, he, he compliments them here as well. He says, I don't really have to instruct you in this because this is one of the things you guys are doing so well. But keep doing it. He really gives them sort of a double down kind of encouragement to, to keep being gracious with one another. And we talked about that again. This is a season where I think the, the church, in the, in, especially here in the United States and even in our, our region, we see a lot of sort of shuffling. We see a lot of, you know, sometimes division. I think that a, a season that has been very difficult has revealed certain fault lines. And this is a season for us to double down in the area of showing brotherly love, brotherly affection, sisterly affection, family of God kind of things. And the Lord really blessed us with that. It was really special even last week as we were able to just kind of break some bread together, have some picnic time together. It feels like in all of the gatherings that I have been a part of in recent weeks, even yesterday with the men's group, there's a certain feeling of like, it's just good to be together. It's good for us. And so let's embrace that in this season of regathering. So Paul says, you know, be pure of heart, be a loving witness, keep, a sim- keep simple living. In other words, mind your business and be a good witness with the simplicity of your life. So he lays those things out for them, and we asked the question last week, if you knew that Christ was returning today, would you do anything differently in the next few hours? And I, and I just hope that that kind of keeps your eyes looking in the right direction. May we be a people who are living with the expectation of the second coming of Christ. So we're going to pick up today in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 and through 18, if you'd like to follow along with me as I read. Paul writes this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. As we unpack this scripture this morning, Paul actually gives us some, some, I think, very practical things to wrestle with. You know, we ask the question about kind of what happens after we die and what does it look like? You know, when we say we have hope in Christ, what does it actually mean in the, in the difficult regions when we actually go through seasons of grief. Our first point is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Our grief that we experience does not overcome our hope. So Paul writes to the Thessalonians, I, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now one, that, one of the things that we can note here as we read Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he's already acknowledged the fact that due to persecution that has come, he was not able to finish some of the discipleship lessons that he wanted to give. 
So he was kind of midstream in that, seeing this new church that was turning from their idols and, and looking to the Lord and growing in their faith. Paul is instructing and teaching, but he actually gets run out and persecution begins to fall on the existing church. So he is acknowledging, essentially, I didn't get to tell you all the things that I wanted to tell you. And now he's hearing that some of the Thessalonian church people have died. And people are wrestling with it. What does this mean for our brothers and sisters who have died, likely some of them through that same persecution? And the young church is not fully versed on how to handle the pain of death. So Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep. Now, I've always thought that was a a weird kind of thing. Paul's doing it essentially to show the temporary nature of human death. He's saying that this life, including the end of this life, is not all there is. And so he's trying to get their attention to what is temporary and what is eternal. But that metaphor can be a little bit tricky to get our minds around. I remember as a little kid, do you remember the first time you heard the prayer, now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. You remember it? And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul should take. And I remember the little kid being like, oh, what, what is this now? What, what did we just say? Like, should I be worried about this? Is this, I wasn't worried, but now I'm a little bit concerned, right? What's going on? Paul says, I want you to be aware of what's going on with those who sleep. Now, the fact of the matter is, We want to acknowledge today, because many of us, we've lost loved ones. Some of us even recently are walking through the pain of grief, and that pain is absolutely real. So we don't need to be flippant about it. We don't need to simply dismiss it or pretend that it is not there. We acknowledge the the pain and the difficulty of our grief, but we also acknowledge that that grief does not overcome our hope. If you want a real good reading and a real raw reading on somebody walking through grief, you could read C.S. Lewis's book, A Grief Observed, which he wrote after the passing of his wife, in which he grapples very, very deeply with where God is in the midst of that pain. And this is what he writes. I think he, he encapsulates it very well. He says, we were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for, Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others. It's in reality, not imagination. And I remember one of the sweetest phrases that I think encapsulates so much. Anytime that I've been doing funeral services, which I I do that in this profession fairly, fairly frequently, but I will sometimes use the phrase that I first heard from Pastor Dave Jansen, who was my predecessor here. He says, you know, it feels when someone dies like we've lost a library. How do you how do you summarize? all that they were and all that they brought and all of the memories and all of their accomplishments and all of those things. And when that separation comes, it is truly the great interrupter. And it is right for us to grieve. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Paul said this to the Corinthian church. He said, uh, I'll read you several verses here from 1 Corinthians 15. He said, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. He goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. 
And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, there he's using this phrase again, they are lost. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, Paul is actually connecting in his teaching, both to the Thessalonians and to the Corinthian church, the resurrection of Christ to our future hope. He says in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, but each in turn. Verse 23, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul actually has a remarkably cohesive set of teachings on this subject. And here's what he says. And this is what is so powerful for those who are in Christ, living in light of eternity, even when we walk through seasons of grief that God has not left us alone. He has not left us in our sin and our hardship. His word says while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die on the cross. He takes uh, our sin upon himself. Even though he was innocent, he paid a price that we could never afford. And so in this life, as we are people who look in light of eternity, we are those who say, in Christ, I fall on his finished work. This is my case before a holy God. This is my case when I die and stand before God in judgment. I'm not going to be dredging up my best accomplishments in hopes that they will somehow win favor with him, but rather to say I fall on the finished work of Christ. This is a good prayer to make. This is a good prayer, uh, a good case to make, a good prayer to pray, and a good way to live. And so at every funeral that I oversee, I usually bring up 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We grieve but not as those who have no hope. And as we continue to read on, I'm gonna show you exactly why that is the case. Let's look at point two. There is a moment in time, what we call the trumpet call of God. Verse 16, Paul references it this way, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And so we look at this moment in time. You know that historically, the theology of Christ's second coming has made a massive impact on the work and the ministry of the church. It's had a massive impact on global missions. It's had a massive impact on why we have hope in the midst of our trials and suffering. This concept has framed much of the worship that the the church has historically created. So back in the day, we sang, soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Recently, we sing, like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. Today, we sang, when he shall come with trumpet sound, may I then in him be found. That is what this is referencing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is, when you really think practically about it, When you really just say, okay, let's think about this notion of the second coming of Christ. This is what I would call among the list of audacious claims of Christianity. And I think this is part of what it means to live a life of faith. That we receive the audacious claims of Christ's kingdom. We don't necessarily get the full picture of how God does what he does. 
but we receive by faith what he has done, and sometimes we get the why, not always. So I'll give you a couple examples. When we talk about the incarnation of Christ, this is an audacious claim. We celebrate this at Christmas or the first advent of Jesus. How is it that God becomes human? I mean, the logistics, the, 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 the laws behind it. How does immortal, invisible, almighty God become human with us? The fact of the matter is we can't really answer that question, but we receive in faith that he has done that. And we, in fact, know the why he has done that. That was part of his redemptive plan. When we think about the audacious claims of Christianity, think about the death and resurrection of Christ. We celebrate this in Holy Week and in Easter. But if I ask you the question, how does Jesus overcome death? Like, like what are the mechanics of that? Jesus Christ in the tomb, moving out of death and back into life and conquering this greatest foe. We would probably say we're not really sure. We can't, we can't map it out, but we can say we know why he was overcoming death. This is the great promise that he gives us of redemption. Well, then we come to the ascension and the second coming of Christ. So I would ask this question. Just think about it practically for a moment. How does the raising of the dead, the reuniting of the spirit and the body, the glorification of earthly bodies, and the rapture of the church work? What are the mechanics of it? Well, the fact of the matter is Paul's giving us a really crystal clear picture, but he's not giving us all of the hows. He's just saying this is going to happen. Jesus has now gone to be with the Father to prepare a place for us. He has left us his mission of redemption, the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, to help us in our weakness. And the arc of Scripture confirms very thoroughly this audacious claim that Jesus is coming back for his church. From the prophets to the gospels to the parables of Jesus to the epistles of Paul and Peter to the revelation of John, Scripture is consistent with this message that Jesus is coming back. So if we are to be those who would live in light of eternity, we need to embrace that. Let me just share a couple of Scriptures with you. I will not exegete them. I'll just share them. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? The author of Hebrews is talking about the return of Christ. 1 John 2, 28, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Revelation 22, one of many Revelation passages that begins, Look, I am coming soon. It says, My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they may have done. Acts 1, if we remember at the ascension of Christ, there's these curious angelic beings that sort of show up. And they say, Acts 1, 10, and 11, why are you looking up into the sky? 
And this is the promise. This same Jesus who has been taking from, taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go. And so we see this, this practical moment in time when the trumpet call of God happens and everything has changed. I want to move us into our third point here. This is the great revelation of the raptured church. Paul says, verse 17, after that we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. This passage, it, you know, again, this is one where if you grew up in the church, you hear about the return of Christ, and so you just assume that you know what it is. You know, Jesus comes back and he gets his church, and we're going to be happy, and those of us who love him and know him are going to go to heaven. There is judgment involved. We're actually going to talk about that in the, the day of the Lord. We're going to talk about that next week. But there's actually a lot going on in this description, and it's actually really thorough. Paul says, let me tell you about what happens to those who have died or are fallen asleep in death in Christ. He says, first of all, they are going to rise. Paul indicates in other writings that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So in this description, we see a few important things happening. The dead in Christ are spiritually coming back with him in verse 14. However, bodily, there will be a resurrection of those who have died. This is a pretty big deal because it's a bodily upgrade. The perishable is being exchanged for the imperishable, if you remember some other scriptures that Paul has taught on. Now, this actually calls into question somewhat the emphasis that we put on the preparation of our bodies when we die or of our loved ones. I don't know by what means my life will end. But there is something about trying to preserve this shell that actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense based on what we know of a resurrected body. I don't know if I will die from spontaneous combustion. I don't know if I will die from a meteor strike. I don't know if I will die a death by piranha. But all of those would cast a lot of doubt onto the idea that we need to somehow preserve this body. The good news is that's actually not how it works. The good news is we get a new upgraded heavenly body, which actually leads me to, a, to an interesting question that I think I know the answer to. Would you rather have your current body for all of eternity or would you rather get an upgrade? I'm saying this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I'm also kind of not. As I got up this morning with a sore back because I'm in my 40s and I wear prescription glasses because I can't see that very well without them, at my last glasses appointment, they talked about polyvisual lenses, which I don't think is a good thing in the long range of things. Would I rather keep this current body for all of eternity or get an upgrade? I mean, I do. I, this is sort of a fascinating thing. I mean, when we think literally about Jesus coming back and the dead in Christ rising with new bodies, this is an instantaneous thing. I can't tell you how he did it. I don't know the bandwidth, the power that it takes to do that. But there is a reconstitution of all that was broken. And I think the evidence that we would need this new body is this. Can you imagine waking up after falling asleep in death and realizing my back still hurts? And I still can't see very well. Some of you are saying, I, I couldn't hear what you said. 
But we actually get an upgraded physical body that is rejoined with our spirit. Paul then says, for those who remain, that is those who are alive when Christ returns, they are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. This is where we get this word, rapture. Now, this is also sort of fascinating when you really study it and look at it. The Greek language here uses a phrase that was common when a king would come back to his city or his people, having been out and maybe coming back now triumphant, that the people of the city would go out to meet him and then in joyful celebration accompany him into the city. That's exactly the language that Paul is using when he says, we who remain If Christ were to come this afternoon, and we're still here, would be caught up to meet him in the air. We would come then back to this earth with him as he comes to reign in judgment. This is what we call the day of the Lord, which will be the subject of the next message. So we're going to kind of get into this a little bit more. But here's what I'd like you to see for this week. I think this is powerful. I think this is important. In all of our uncertainty, in all of the places where our walk of faith is not a walk of sight, we don't always see what God is doing and how. We don't always know God's perspective. I want you to think for just one holy moment about this notion of the church being raptured to meet Jesus in the air. In this one moment... We see the, the, those who have been buried in Christ being brought back somehow with a new body, and those who are still alive are being snapped up to meet the Lord in the air. Some of you are afraid of heights. I don't have an answer. Jesus will work that out. Think about the moment of naked clarity where you absolutely know where you stand before God. Because that's what this is talking about. And I don't know that we always have that clarity, but here's what Paul is saying. There is coming a time where you are going to absolutely know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, where you stand with Jesus Christ and his finished work. And he's saying to the Thessalonian church, I want you to be ready for that day. I want you to know where you stand. Because, you know, for for many of us and and for, for much of my Christian walk, I've had this sort of fear and trepidation connected with the second coming of Christ. When everything is sort of laid bare and will I be found to be in him? But, you know, we don't have to live with that kind of uncertainty and fear. And Paul is pointing the Thessalonian church that he loves so well. In fact, he's going to go on to say, he says in the second, cha- uh, second uh, letter to them, he said, look, you didn't miss the rapture of God. You didn't miss the second coming of Christ. When Jesus Christ comes back, you are going to know it. So you don't have to worry about having missed it. They were concerned about that. Some of you maybe have had that same question. Paul says you are absolutely going to know it. It's going to be a global event. But it is a moment for us to consider how we stand with this audacious faith claim of Jesus. 
Many of us have talked about the second coming of Christ since we were a little kid. We do well to ponder it. And I love that Paul ends this passage by saying, encourage one another with these words. He's essentially saying, I'm going to answer your questions. I know you're grieving, but the hope we have actually trumps the grief we experience. So be aware of that. Be aware that even those of us who are still alive, when Christ comes back, we have a special calling. God has a plan for what he's going to do with us. Be aware of that. And then he says, as you live in light of eternity, encourage each other with these words. And I'd like to simply say to us in closing this, each of us must decide what to do with this. You may decide to ignore it and hope for the best. A great quote from Groucho Marx, he said, I intend to live forever or die trying. (laughs) Okay, good luck with that. A second option is to say, you know, I will explore this and seek to understand why I am able to have a hope that transcends even grief and even the separation of death. And perhaps... Most beautifully, you can embrace it and actually look forward to that which comes next. It doesn't diminish the purposefulness of this life. It doesn't diminish the joy of this life to simply know that something better is coming. I think there's a few very practical things that we as people who are living in light of eternity can do. Number one is to simply embrace the fact that death is not the final word. It just doesn't get the final word. I mean, that is one of the great joys of walking with Jesus. That is why when I've seen people who are going through intense times of struggle, faith-bending, faith-stretching seasons of trials, and yet you see them coming through it, why are they able to walk through with that level of confidence? Because they already know that death doesn't have the final word. And they're preparing for that which is coming next. We saw that in a powerful testimony even just yesterday. Chris was sharing, Chris Cunningham, one of our elders, sharing about a trial that he's walking through. And as I see his faith in action, and it says, man, Jesus helped me to, to grow and to be like that when I grow up. Death doesn't get the final word. The other thing is that when we live in light of eternity and we live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, we actually get a small glimpse of heaven even right now. We've uh, experienced many times, even in recent days and weeks, the opportunity to come together and to to be blessed, to be seeing one another, to be encouraging one another. And I think in many ways that is a a foretaste of what God has for us. I mentioned before, I'm going to close with this, that I always read 1 Thessalonians 4.13 when I'm doing a funeral. One of the other things that I like to quote is a quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Last Battle, as he's wrapping up the Chronicles of Narnia. And as I read this to my kids when they were little, I could just never get through it without crying. I hit it pretty well, but I think that they knew. Dad needs a minute. And it says this. It says, all their life in this world, all their adventures, had only been the cover and had only been the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. And in a children's story, C.S. Lewis encapsulates so beautifully the hope that overcomes even the deepest moments of our grief. 
This is one of the blessings of living in light of eternity. I hope that you know that hope this morning. I'm going to ask you to respond with me in prayer. Jesus, we thank you today. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that even though right here uh, among our church family, we have many stories that have been hard, stories of loss, stories of grief. We thank you, Jesus, that we are able to say, in light of what Christ has done, you have given us a hope that transcends our grief. Lord, I pray that in these days and these weeks that you would do a a work in us to cause us to get our eyes up, that we would look in light of, of eternity, live in light of eternity. Again, that we would say as the early church brothers and sisters did, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. You have good things in store for your church. You have good things in store for your people. And at this point, God, we recognize that our our work is not yet done, and so we will be faithful. I pray that you would strengthen us to serve well in the meantime. But we thank you, Jesus, that as we live in light of eternity, we can cling to that promise that you have not left us alone, that death does not have the final word. I pray, Lord, even today, there might be somebody who would need to say, I bow my knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Instead of living for myself, I will... will Be sure on that day of his return that I am ready for it. So Jesus, we confess our sin before you. You know our hearts. You know our needs. You know our misses. You know that even our best is not good enough. And so we fall on the finished work of Jesus Christ today. We receive him. We would be found in him today. Jesus, thank you for your broken body. Thank you for your shed blood. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you that you call us to live in light of eternity. So, Lord, we we receive you today. We thank you for the work that you are doing even now. We pray, Jesus, that you would be stirring in hearts and lives, helping us to be the church that you desire for us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.